All right, well, good morning, everybody. So uh, once again, we are in the book of Jeremiah, uh, and we'll be in chapter 38 today. And um, in while you're turning there, Jeremiah chapter 1, we have some verses um, that talk about uh, what uh, kind of Jeremiah's call was going to be. It says, the Lord said to me, uh, don't say I'm only a youth, for to all whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. I think my battery stopped, so I'm just going to crank up the volume. Okay. Uh, Jeremiah 1 did not include the part about the batteries and the volume, just to be clear. <laughs> he said, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand, touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, I've put my words in your mouth. I've set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck them up and to break them down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So there was a lot going on that Jeremiah was going to be asked to do by God. But generally, um, as we'll see today, his message was very consistent over and over. And even, as we'll see again, his detractors heard that message. But there was a promise in verse 8 where it says, Don't be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. And that's going to come in handy, as we'll find um, once again, um, that Jeremiah needs delivering. Now, we've talked about that Jeremiah, the, the book... Um, is not necessarily in chronological order, but the chapters that we are looking at now actually are. So um, chapter 37 flows straight to chapter 38 and so forth, all the way up to chapter 44. So we are in a run where we can think linearly uh, about Jeremiah where normally we can't. And so in in chapter 37, uh, we saw that uh, Jeremiah was falsely accused. So here we are, we have Jerusalem being a, a, a city under siege. Uh, the Babylonians are on the northern border. Uh, the Egyptians, whom the, uh, the current government in Jerusalem was hoping to take their side, that they had some connections with the Egyptians. They hoped the Egyptians were going to help uh, support their cause, so to speak, again, and protect them, in essence, from the Babylonians. And we saw that there was this, um, this period of time when the Babylonians said, you know, we better stop what we're doing with Jerusalem and go take care of the Egyptians. And when they did that, there was a temporary truce or peace over the the city of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah thought that was the right time for him to leave the city and to take care of some business to put his affairs in order, as it were. And you'll recall that he was captured and accused of being a deserter and was uh, basically thrown in jail and everything. And eventually he was delivered from that, but he was still in house arrest. And so that's where we uh, find Jeremiah. Uh, when we pick up to uh, verse 1 of chapter 38, uh, he's in the, the court of the guard. Hello? And we're back. Yay. Uh, what I usually do if I'm talking as a patient that can't hear, I'll usually continue to talk loudly for about five additional patients um, (laughs) until I realize what I'm doing. So I'll try to calm it down. 
All right, so Jeremiah chapter 38, verse 1. Now, Shephatiah, which is probably nowhere near how his mama called it, um, the son of Matan, and Gedaliah, the son of Pasher, Jukal, the son of Shelemiah, and Pasher, the son of Malachiah, heard the words that Jeremiah was saying to all the people. Uh, so you got four guys here. Uh, you might think of them as members of Jeremiah's cabinet. And these four relatively power and influential men, they have an idea. And just in case you didn't know, just because four guys get together with an idea doesn't necessarily make it a good idea. That seemed to be a lot of women agreeing with that. I don't know. <laughs> Was that just me? I, I, anyway, you've got these four guys, um, pro-Egyptian folks, and, and they have an idea. And they, they say... Uh, Jeremiah uh, is saying this to all the people. So they've been hearing Jeremiah. He's in the court of the guard, but it hasn't shut him up. And in verse 2, they say, thus, you know, this is what Jeremiah is saying. Quote, Thus says the Lord, He who stays in the city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Some say plague. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans, that's another word for the Babylonians, he who goes out to the Chaldeans shall live. He shall have his life as a prize of war, and live. Thus says the Lord, this city shall surely be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon and be taken. Then the official said to the king, these four guys, let this man be put to death, for he is weakening the hand of the soldiers who are left in the city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. So their complaint against Jeremiah was he is weakening morale. Here we are, the Babylonians are coming against us, and he's telling everybody you should surrender to the Babylonians. So several things about this. First of all, as one commentator said, Jeremiah had one sermon. He had one sermon, and he preached it over and over and over and over again, and they actually got it. You stay in the city, you'll die. Sword, famine, that's the siege, or just disease that happened because we're all pressed together. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, shall live. Um, over and over, we've heard Jeremiah's prophecies are pretty much the same. Whatever you're doing, repent, or the Babylonians are going to come and wipe you out. You've sinned against the Lord. You should repent, or the Babylonians from the north are going to come and kill you. Oh, by the way, you should repent because you've broken your vows, and if you don't, the Babylonians, you get it. Now, at this point, we're up to probably 35 years of this. Now, I feel maybe just a little bit of empathy for the various reporters who are tasked to follow these politicians around, you know that 99% of their speech is probably the same no matter where they go, and they're lucky if they get the name of the town right where they are that day, right? And that's just one political season. Think about having to hear this prophet, the same thing over and over and over again, working on his fourth decade. 
So when it says in verse 2, here's what he's saying, they probably could recite it by heart. And then they say, let this man, which is interesting, they don't even want to give him the credit of being a prophet, even though everything he says or has said looks like it's coming true. So let this man be put to death. He's weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in the city. That's probably true. But here's a little bit of admission. The soldiers who are left in the city, meaning that the soldiers who have left is because we've already had soldiers who have left. Right? Some have already deserted. And also weakening the hands of all the people. The, um, morale, he is not good for morale. And that, that was probably true. So here was their plan to do something about it. He said, let's let this man be put to death. And if you, this is, there's a lot of life and death stuff going on. And somebody counted the word death or dying shows up about nine times in this chapter. So things were, things were rough. King Zedidiah said, behold, he's in your hands for the king can do nothing against you. How weak of a king are you if these four guys just come to you with an idea and you realize that you just don't have the power to say no to them? Or maybe you don't have the courage or the gumption or whatever to say no to them, but basically washes his hands of the deal and said, Behold, he's in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. Verse 6, So they took Jeremiah, cast him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. So Jeremiah is roughly in the same general vicinity, but he is not getting bumped up to first class. He is having a significant downgrade to his accommodations. He's taken from the court of the guard, probably house arrest, and now he is being tossed in this cistern, letting him down by ropes. So it's pretty deep cistern and there was no water in the cistern but only mud and Jeremiah sank in the mud so a cistern is not a well a cistern is a cavity in the rock that had been specifically chosen so that it could hold water that was put into it so you would have had people that were going to wherever the water source was and dumping water in the cistern or if there were rain you know if there was rain being collected that would go into the cistern so you would have it so this is an indication of just how badly things are going with the siege of the city. Um, probably any rivers that would, or creeks that would have been coming into the city have been dammed up by the Babylonians. There were a few pools uh, and springs within the confines of the city, but not many, and certainly not even enough to fill up the cistern of the king's son. So this was bad. The times were bad. And so they, they throw Jeremiah down in there, and that also doesn't say much for their optimism because if you thought things were going well for you, would you throw a guy down in your cistern, leaving him for dead in the hopes that you were ever going to use that cistern again? No, I generally don't like dead things in my water. So that's kind of where things were. Jeremiah sank in the mud. So this is interesting um, as to what happens next. Verse 7. When Abedmelech, the Ethiopian, um, some might say a Cushite, 
in your translations, when Abedmelech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern, the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate, Abedmelech went from the king's house and said to the king, so he's going to the king, we'll talk about what he says in just a second, but uh, it says Abedmelech the Ethiopian. So Abedmelech, basically, it could be his name perhaps, but it, it's a title mainly, it basically means a servant of the king. And we'll see that this is uh, pertinent when it says Abedmelech the Ethiopian. His title, servant of the king, who was an Ethiopian, um, is mentioned at least four times over the next um, chapter and a half. Um, So this makes the point that this was very much an outsider. So you have um, into this probably fairly homogeneous uh, community of Israelites, you have uh, a black man from Africa, a Gentile, who is there, uh, a servant of the king. Um, we don't know. It says uh, a eunuch, um, which may mean, it, apparently it doesn't always mean, but it, it may mean that this was um, a man who had either been castrated or perhaps had been born that way. Um and typically would have been put in charge of the king's harem. Uh, But in this particular case, it seems like he was a fairly close advisor of the king, maybe even uh, some sort of a uh, military police or something like that. Uh, So he he certainly was aware of what was going on, and he's been observing all this. So this is an outsider, and the hero of the story is this black man— who's not even a Jew, who has, you might say, this was really none of his business. What does he care? He may have even been enslaved himself and just minded his own business. Things are not going well. You know, why would he want to cause trouble? But yet, perhaps he had also been hearing Jeremiah for all those years and maybe was starting to believe. So it's it's interesting that in this story, you will, we've talked and, and, and we know about God's plan to preserve a remnant of people uh, for himself um, when, when many of them would be destroyed. And it's pretty clear that the remnant are the people who heeded the word of God. They are the people who listened to Jeremiah and left. Abedmelech appears to be one who heard the words of Jeremiah and was inclined to follow those. So in verse 9, it says, My Lord, the king, these men have done evil in all that they did to Jeremiah by casting him into the cistern. He will die there of hunger, for there is no bread left in the city. As we closed out chapter 37, we saw that Jeremiah uh, had bread in the court of the guard as long as there was bread left. Well, now we find things have gotten worse, and Abedmelech says there is no bread left in the city. Then the king commanded Abedmelech the Ethiopian, take 30 men with you from here and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So this is interesting. Zedekiah the king appears to be heavily influenced by whoever he spoke to last, uh, whoever's in his face about something. Um, But... To go against those guys that had just been there, I guess, shows the influence of Abed-Melech and maybe 
Zedekiah does recognize the truth that he did the wrong thing by, by putting him in the cistern to begin with. And, of course, it's not going to take 30 men to lift Jeremiah out. So these, he probably knew it was, it was risky. So the, the other 26 or whatever were probably there to protect the, the, the operation that was going to happen anyway. In any event, he says, take 30 men and lift Jeremiah the prophet, so at least he's willing to call him a prophet, out of the cistern before he dies. So Bedmelech took the men with him and went to the house of the king to a wardrobe in the storehouse and took there, took from there old rags and worn out clothes, which he led to Jeremiah in the cistern by ropes. So it's interesting. Uh, and by the way, there's so much detail here. This is, there's clearly some eyewitness accounts that have been collected to, for this story. Um, he's in the household of the king. He goes to the border of the, of the city, because it said the king was currently at the Benjamin Gate, which was on the outskirts of the city. He speaks to the king, and rather than go straight to where Jeremiah is, he goes back to the king's place and goes through, I guess, those things that were going to be heading to goodwill. And he goes through, he finds rags and worn-out clothes, presumably things that would be soft, which he let down to Jeremiah in the cistern by ropes. Um, but I'm presuming that he could like pad under his arms or provide padding for these ropes, um, which you know is just a, a, a great attention to detail by this um, by this man um, to not only rescue him but um, to do it properly. And we see the rest of this in verse 12. Then Abedmelech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, "Put the rags and clothes between your armpits and the ropes." Jeremiah did so. Then they drew Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the cistern, and Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. Um, this is, um, uh, again, just a, a great, a great um, uh, story of, of uh, in the hero um, coming from outside, you know, just from out of nowhere, so to speak, uh, to really intervene. And fulfilling the promise that God gave to Jeremiah back in verse 8, that, that I will deliver you. Now to verse 14. It says, King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet and received him at the third entrance of the temple of the Lord. And the king said to Jeremiah, I'll ask you a question. Hide nothing from me. Verse 15, Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, if I tell you, will you not surely put me to death? In other words, I've kind of seen how this went last time. He says, and if I give you counsel, you will not listen to me. Then Zedekiah swore secretly to Jeremiah, as the Lord lives who made our souls, I will not put you to death or deliver you into the hand of these men who seek your life. Um, we know from the previous story, Zedekiah has really wanted to have Jeremiah um, say things that he wanted to hear, that Zedekiah wanted to hear. Um, there's a part of him that knows Jeremiah's telling the truth, that knows he needs to be on the right side of things from God's perspective, um, and he keeps hoping Jeremiah's going to change his message. I don't know why he is holding out hope, but that's, that's where he is. Verse 17, Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, 
If you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life shall be spared, and this city shall not be burned with fire, and you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans, and they shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from their hand. That sounds familiar. Verse 19. King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Judeans who have deserted to the Chaldeans, lest I be handed over to them and they deal cruelly with me. Now, this is weird, right? He's more scared of the, his own people who have deserted than he is of the people who were there to conquer him. It, the, it's really, I, I can't really explain it. It makes no sense. Um, Jeremiah says, you shall not be given to them. Obey now the voice of the Lord and what I say to you, and it shall be well with you and your life shall be spared. <laughs> it sounds like a good deal under the circumstances. But if you refuse to surrender, this is the vision which the Lord has shown to me. Behold, all the women left in the house of the king of Judah were being led out to the officials of the king of Babylon and were saying, your trusted friends have deceived you and prevailed against you. Now that your feet are sunk in the mud, they turn away from you. So Jeremiah shares a vision that he received of what Zedekiah is going to go through and what it is the conquering king has captured the harem. And as the harem is being led away, they turn and mock him basically saying, they told you so. And now we find that it's Zedekiah who is apparently now in the cistern and his feet are now in the mud and things are not going well. Verse 23, all your wives and your sons shall be led out to the Chaldeans and you yourself, you yourself shall not escape from their hand but shall be seized by the king of Babylon and this city shall be burned with fire. Over and over and over again, like Dad says, sometimes it gets redundant, but he's telling them the same message, and they just don't want to hear it. And in fact, it was, you know, not only do they not want to hear it, they literally are like, blah, 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 I don't want to hear it, because they just want to, they just want to get rid of the messenger, right? Um, in essence, a gag order. Um, just stop telling us the truth. Um, on that point, it, it, um, it made me think of this concept that the truth is very much a casualty uh, nowadays in a lot of different areas. And um, sadly, um, the truth has often been shielded even in church circles. And one of the one of the topics that I, I think we should all start to pay attention to is uh, not just churches but other organizations that have gotten in the habit of dealing with their issues by paying people off and forcing people to sign non-disclosure agreements when they leave. And this does not sound like an honorable way to do things. And I think one of the big pushbacks that the SBC had to deal with was because not only were they not being fully transparent, but, but they were 
more concerned with secrecy and with reputation than they were with justice for the people that had been harmed in various ways. And we've seen this a lot of places. Um, there were, I think, 23 women who won a suit against Liberty University um, where the university failed to support them and basically coerced their silence in various ways and um, and you know if you if you are weak in a weak position to begin with and then you're um, gagged essentially from telling your story after the fact that's just not good um, the people uh, the women that were offended um, and abused in Rabbi Zacharias's ministry um, just signed a non-disclosure agreement and you just don't talk about it take your money and go um, some of the early um, victims of abuse in the Catholic Church. Uh, there was a big case down in Louisiana. Here, take your money, but you can't say anything. And when you don't say anything, then abuse continues. You know, so uh, gagging people and preventing them from talking is never a good thing. And it made me think. Uh, you know, serving on the steering committee right now, I'm wondering. I don't know that there's ever been a time when Covenant has asked someone to sign an NDA. I hope that's never happened. Um, but I would hope it would never happen. Um, you know, aside from somebody saying I'm not going to disclose financial information or something, I guess that's reasonable, and you certainly want to protect victims, but you don't want to protect sin. And uh, so that's my rant for the day. Verse 24. Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, let no one know of these words, and you shall not die. Don't tell anybody. If the officials hear that I've spoken with you and come to you and say to you, tell us what you said to the king and what the king said to you, hide nothing from us and we will not put you to death, then you shall say to them, I made a humble plea to the king that he would not send me back to the house of Jonathan to die there. Then all the officials came to Jeremiah and asked him, and he answered them as the king had instructed him. So they stopped speaking with him, for the conversation had not been overheard. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard until the day that Jerusalem was taken. So this is interesting. Um, here we have Jeremiah who fearlessly for 40 some years has uh, delivered his prophecy in a very faithful way. And some people have said, well, why is he lying now? What's up with that? And is he, has he no longer trust God to preserve him? What, you know, why is he acquiescing to the king's request to, um, uh, to basically lie to those that are going to come to him. And uh, I think it's an interesting conversation. Um, my take is, I don't know if, I don't know if this is really lying. So like, if I'm playing poker and I try to bluff somebody off a hand, yes, I'm lying. But that's the way you play the game. He's in a weird situation here. The king says, okay, tell him this. Well, okay, well, that's how you play the game. I, it, this doesn't bother me that much. 
But he could also be saying this truthfully because earlier on we did see that Jeremiah asked the king, I think it was in 37, um, hey, you know, protect me. And so he may have just been uh, uh, creative with the way he told it. Um, so I don't, I don't have anything against Jeremiah in this particular instance. There are some um, interesting parallels here that, that occurred to me, and, and uh, this isn't unique. But think about this. So you have, you have this prophet who has been teaching and preaching among the people for quite a while, and his message is well known. And it's not going, the, the message is not being received by the local population. So the local population, they've heard it. We saw, you know, Jeremiah had been speaking and speaking. We also saw that it had been in written form. So there's been uh, verbal evidence and, and also uh, written evidence of the message. Everybody knows what the message is, but the local populace are not receiving it. And the local populace doesn't want to hear the message, so they go to the local leader and they say, we don't want to hear it. You know, let's get rid of this guy. And the leader says, I'm washing my hands of this deal. Do with him what you want. And what they want is to throw him in the ground. You see what we're doing here, right? So we have Jesus who has been preaching a message that is well known to the people, so much so that at one point they thought it was amazing. But then the crowd turns, they're against him. They go to the local leader and say, get rid of this guy. He says, have your way with him. And then they, in essence, throw him in the ground. A lot of parallels there, I think, if you tell the story that way. But the message really is the same. Jeremiah says, you can hang out with your loser king or you can surrender to the king that's going to win. Right? So that's kind of our message. We can kind of keep doing our own loser king stuff, which nowadays is the self. Or we can surrender to the king that's going to win. So I think it's kind of a cool way to kind of frame this story. Um, of course, we know that although both guys came out of the ground, um, one is still out. And uh, so I think it's a, I think it's a cool uh, kind of bookend on, on Jeremiah. All right, we'll pause there, um, and uh, I'll, I'll hear your comments. Um, the heading for chapter 39 says the fall of Jerusalem, right? So spoiler alert, Jeremiah was right, and bad stuff's going to happen. And we're going to see that unfold in the coming chapters. But uh, I thought I really enjoyed um, 37 and 38. And, um, you know, we have, uh, you know, our hero from Egypt that, uh, that gives Jeremiah the reprieve. Comments? It's interesting how many times in the Old Testament you see Gentiles who are the, the hero of the thing. Uh, Rahab the harlot. And, right. Uh, Naomi was... Ruth, right. Well, invite us. Things that, that, that God sticks people in certain places to kind of help. 
Yeah, uh, excellent point, as Dave said. Um, how many times have Gentiles been at pivotal points in the story of the Bible? And I think that's one of the little things that makes Scripture seem so authentic, because if you were going to write something fake, you wouldn't write it that way, right? You wouldn't have some random person with that would get zero respect be the hero of the story. You just wouldn't write it like that. Unless it was true. Excellent. Excellent. I may be imagining this. It, it is a bit of speculation, but God brings Jeremiah to the palace. And now the palace guard is hearing the message, perhaps more than they ever had before. Yeah. Maybe that's why Zedekiah is so spineless at this point. And, uh, you know, they're defecting and yeah. paying attention. And the contrast is interesting that Ebed Melech, who understands and believes the message, but right. doesn't defect. Yeah, there's a lot of interest. So, in fact, the same word for Abedmelech, there's the same version of it used for those four guys who had this bright idea. Uh, So you have these guys who are in positions of power who get their idea, and their idea of serving their king is to try to shut this guy up, and the other guy's idea of serving the king is to to rescue the the, the prophet. And... um, uh, so they're, they're certainly serving in different ways, uh, for sure. Uh, great, great point. And uh, just like um, as you know, later in the story chronologically, uh, here we have Daniel brought in to the court and delivers a message that otherwise wouldn't have been heard. You know, Joseph gets pulled into the court and is able to deliver a message to Pharaoh that otherwise wouldn't have been heard. So God has a way of placing people in the right place at the right time. So good point. Do you think that has any parallel with today? Oh, it sounds very fresh to me. It really does. does. All right, let's close. Father, we thank you so much that indeed your word is very fresh and always has something to say. We thank you for for Jeremiah and his faithfulness in delivering this message, so much so that even his enemies fully understood it. Uh, We thank you that... Uh, he prophesied properly and that he encouraged people to come to the winning side. And we thank you for for Jesus, who was uh, an even better Jeremiah, who uh, has brought us uh, the opportunity to come over to the winning side. And we thank you um, that we have been able to uh, accept him and to uh, be part of this family. Uh, in his name I pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody.